Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is dedicated loving memory of Siahu Haim Dayan. Alava Shalom Lilu Nishmat Siahu Haim Ben Adel. On the Shiloshim, sponsored by his grandchildren Alberto, Johnny Rafael, and Mauricio Diwan. Breakfast is also dedicated and sponsored loving memory of Lilu Nishmat, Matt's mother, Naomi Ben Bat Rivka Alea Shalom. And for the Rifuash Lema of Rafael Vitale Ben Ferida, sponsored by Matt. Chatamov. Uh, breakfast is also dedicated in loving memory of Rabbi Shimon Amos Alava Shalom Lilu Nishmat Rabbi Shimon Ben Rabbi Moshe Alava Shalom sponsored by his son Gabriel Amos. Rabbi the pasuk says Vayar Yisrael at Misraim met Asfat Ayam, and Israel, the Jewish people, saw the Egyptians uh, dead Asfat Ayam on the riverbank, and as soon as they finished Vayaminu Amunai Moshe Avdo as Yashim Moshe. Israel. Then the Jewish people sang. There's many, many different interpretations in the word as Yashir Moshe. What does it mean then the Jewish people sang? But regardless of the different interpretations, at the very least what we're seeing here is as Yashir Moshe. When did Moshe begin to sing? Moshe began to sing when they saw all the Egyptians dead on the ground. Once they were dead on the floor, then the Jewish people began to sing. And the question is, why exactly, the Ben Ishchai asks, why did they wait until now to sing the song? Now, uh, let me explain the, the reason why this song is so, this question is so powerful. The Gemara in Perek Chelek describes that the King Chizkiyahu should have and could have been Mashiach. Could you believe that? Great-grandson of uh, David HaMelech, Chizkiyahu, king. He could have been Mashiach all the way back in history. All the suffering, all the pain of the Jewish people never would have occurred. Never would have transpired. Cheskiyahu HaMelech would have been Mashiach. Except that he did not say Shira. When the, when the uh, armies of Ashur were gathered around Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands, and then Chizkiyahu did not know what to do, and they had no way of... He praised HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Hashem does a miracle, and a plague breaks out, and they all die on the spot. I don't know, coronavirus or something. Everybody dies outside the walls. There's piles of bodies of the soldiers of uh, Ashur outside the city, and not a single Jewish soldier even went to war. At that moment, when this miracle had been done for them, he, just, he needed to say Shira. And had he said Shira, says the Gemara... He would have become the Mashiach. Not saying Shira took from him the ability to be the Messiah himself. That means that when a person is supposed to say Shira and they don't, it's not like, okay, you sing a song, you didn't sing a song. It's an expression of thanks that not saying that expression is held against you in a court of law. Okay? You hear that? So the question is, the Jewish people see Dam. No, no, no Shira. Svardea, no shira. Kinim, aro, devesh, chim, nothing. Even makat bechorot, Paro is running through the streets of Egypt, screaming on the top of his lungs, leave. They hear his voice in all of Egypt, it says. It was a miracle that his voice was magnified, that they could hear, the entire country could hear Paro's voice. So the Jewish people are witnessing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, no shira. When do they sing Shira? they in the desert for three days, you know, all the momentum dies down. You know, Barmanan, what's going on in uh, Iowa? <laughs> they invented the app, the Democrats, to, uh, to try and make, what's it called? To try and make the, the process more transparent, to make it easier, to make it faster. 
Of course, you know, the, uh, the uh, app was struck with Makat Bechorot. It was the firstborn of the apps of the Democrats. It died a horrible death. No, 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 none of the results were tallied. It was a disaster, right? And the crazy thing is, here, here they are. There's no, you know, they can't, they, they, can't, they, can't, they, can't, they can't show anything for their efforts. But now listen to this. And this is an amazing thing here, okay? What happens as Yeshu Moshe? Why is it such a big problem? Because all the winners are all complaining. Normally, the caucuses, they propel the winners forward. And the losers of the caucus, they learn from the fact that they had a poor showing that they shouldn't bother entering into the race, and they drop out of the race. So it's a very important moment. The announcing of the winner is very important. You have a day, even 10, 15 hours, without reporting the winner, people stop being interested. The whole Iowa caucus now loses its power to declare a winner and to divest the losers of their power. So momentum is an incredibly powerful thing, unless you're talking about the momentum, which is the name of the Labour Party in England, which is a very not powerful thing as it lost all of its power under Jeremy Corbyn, Yemach Shemot. Okay, the point is, Rabotai, that the lack of momentum meant everything. So here the Jewish people are riding high on all the miracles, and then they go into the desert, and they're wandering around the desert for three days. Could you imagine millions of Jews in the desert, wandering back and forth. I mean, I'm sure the first day they were all singing, Am Yisrael Chai. I mean, I don't know if they know the tune, but something of that nature, right? Day two, they're still in the desert. You know, they're eating the leftover food in the backpack. Day three, no one even knows where they're going. I imagine that by day three, they were ready to, they were all complaining. And that's actually what happened. They get to the ocean. There's nowhere more to go. All the people, what's going on? Did you take us out to die here in the desert? All the complainers start coming out. It's only after Yamsuf is finished, everybody's dead, now the Jews sing. As Yeshir Moshe. Why now? So Rabotai, there's a very powerful thing here. A reason why the Jewish people did not sing As Yashir Moshe. They did not sing Shira before. And this applies to each and every person in their own, uh, in their own process of, uh, of dealing with the things that come their way. The Ben Ishchai gives an example. There's a sick man, unfortunately. The man is unwell. He comes to the doctor. He's got this uh, growth on his arm, barminan, which you never know. The doctor takes a look at it. And he says, uh, Sir, I'm looking at this. I could see instantly that this is very dangerous. It's malignant. It's cancerous. We need to cut it out. As the doctor uh, brings him into uh, surgery, he notices that the, this lump that the guy has on his arm, it's not only on the surface. So he, as he's cutting it off of the surface, he realizes that it's grown deep into the man's arm. He takes a look, he realizes that he can't just cut it out because it's, it's kind of grown all around the guy's arteries. He cut that over there, but the guy could bleed out. So he says to him, listen, I need to, I'm going to cut this off now. You're going to see, I mean, the major part of it is going to be cut off, but all that's grown underneath the surface, which is very complicated to extricate, I'm going to need to do in a, in a series of surgeries. Each time cutting a little bit more, and each time, once I cut more, it'll make it weaker, it'll make the attachments weaker, until eventually I can cut out the whole piece. Guy cuts out on the first day, bandages in, it's bleeding, guy's in so much pain, two days later, the doctor comes back again, he's cutting more, third day, cutting more, each time the doctor says, you know, we're getting closer, we're almost there, Eventually, 20 times, 30 times, each time he's cutting one strand under the microscope until finally the guy, you don't believe him anymore. 
Everything, we're almost done, we're almost done. He's told him, you've heard that mass so many times before already. Until finally, you know, that day comes when the doctor comes in and he takes the knife, you know, that he uses, that he leaves in the room, the specialized knife. And he's sitting there and he's cutting, cutting, cutting until finally he says to the guy, he says, today is the final day, that's it, no more. But he could see on the guy's face that he still doesn't believe him. There's no joy, there's no smile. Because every time he gets his hopes up, they're broken again. Rabotai, as he finishes cutting, the doctor realizes there's only one way the guy's going to believe. Only one way the guy's going to believe that it's over. He takes the knife and he says, Mabruk, you're done. And he takes that and he breaks the knife in half. Once the guy sees that the mechanism by which the man is cutting into him is done, over, now already he can breathe, he starts crying, calls his family, everyone comes in, they're singing, they're laughing, they're joking. Abu Tai, Boreh Olam, he brings the Egyptians to come punish the Jewish people, to build, to build the Jewish people, to challenge them, to bring some sort of structural change into the uh, psyche of the people. They needed to learn lessons from being in Egypt. And now what happens, comes Dam, but you know what, you're still in Egypt. Comes Sifadeh, I'm sure the Jews are happy, but they're still here. And then another one, and then another one, another one. And you know what, the Benish Chai doesn't say this, but I'm wondering in the back of my head. I wonder if the Jewish people said to themselves, you know, if God really was powerful enough to take us out, why is he doing it like this one bit at a time? Maybe he doesn't have the power to take us out completely. Each time he needs to do only a little bit, only a little improvement in the situation. And that's all God's capable of doing. Finally, at the end of the process, they look up, the tool that had been used to hurt them, so to speak, was dead on the floor in front of them. But not only that, our Chachamim explained, Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim, it doesn't just mean the collective, or the colloquial Yisrael saw the collective, the colloquial Egypt dead on the ground. Rather, each and every Yisrael, each and every Jew was able to see the person who had tormented him and his family. The guy who was in charge, Sergeant, you know, uh, I don't know, Tutankhamun Third, I don't know, whatever, right? Tutankhamun, right? He looks at the guy. And he knows who he is. And I can't believe it. it's this guy. It's Imenhotep, you know? <laughs> this guy. It's the guy that did it. And he was also able to see that the death of each Egyptian was not the same as every other. As we know, we say in Az Yashir, some of them were compared, right, Ka'aven, like stones. Some of them like lead, heaviest. Some of them like straw. The, the nicest of them that still hurt, killed, maimed, but wasn't uh, excessively evil or bestial, they stay, you know, that guy sunk straight to the bottom. The second guy sunk, but not as quick. The third guy was like straw, and the chunks of the river that had frozen into hard pieces were bashing them to bits as they were tossed in the rough surf. So when a person could look down and they saw this, suddenly the Jewish people understood that the reason why God took them out in a sequence, bit by bit, was not because it was in, God was incapable of their salvation in one shot, but rather because there was a specific debt to be paid on each and every action. 
if the Jewish people had suffered uh, through their hands in a way that the, the, Jewish, the Egyptians needed to be punished with dam, then they got dam and then they got sefardeah. Suddenly they learned that it wasn't an incapable God, but an exacting God of justice and power who knew the innermost thoughts of heart and the hearts and minds of men and was able to give them each and everything that they deserved. Suddenly the Jewish people understood that it wasn't because of a lack of power, but rather because of an excess of focus and a specific level of care and sensitivity on God's part that they had waited this long to leave Misraim. As Yashir Moshe. You know, I think to myself this question, you know, for all each and every one of us, when we are experiencing wonderful things in our life, you know, you're like, oh, the craziest thing happened to me. It was amazing. Does a person think like to go crazy and sing songs and praise Hashem? You know, when something bad goes wrong, when something wrong goes wrong, how much do you talk about it? You tell anyone that will listen. You call up and you tell this one and you tell that one and you tell this one and you tell that one. You'll never believe what happened. I can't believe it. I had the worst luck today. We complain about stories 10 times more than we are grateful about the things that are good in our lives. As Yashir Moshe, part of the reason for that is Rabotai, is because each time we find something that goes well, what do we tell ourselves? All right, this is, bit, but you know, but all the rest of the stuff is still terrible. All the rest of the stuff could still be good. All the rest of the stuff could still be better than it is now. So what am I going to say Shira for now? The Jewish people waited until the Egyptians were dead in front of them. They had complete closure from their tormentors, Rabotai. But think about not just the praise that you're robbing God from. Think about the joy and gratitude that you are robbing from yourself when you don't engage in this practice every day. You know, the, the famous line goes, it's not happy people who are grateful. It's grateful people who are happy. So what do you want for yourself? Do you want to be someone that is focused on the beautiful and the positive things? You know what? If you're that person, so every time something goes well, you note it, you mention it, you talk about it, you mention it to people at work, you're sitting with your wife, the most beautiful thing happened today. How many people walk into their house and say the most beautiful thing happened today? I think it's a little bit more common when people say, you're not gonna believe what someone did to me. You're not gonna believe what happened to me today at work. This guy, I hate him, I hate his father, his mother should go to Gehenna. Like the way people speak, it's unbelievable, right? We're making a choice, Rabotai, what kind of life and what kind of existence we want to put ourselves in. It is the most cynical people, perhaps, that are only willing to give thanks when absolutely everything is done and it went right and it this and that. Could you imagine this? A wife, she gets married to her husband and she's waiting, she's waiting for him to say, under the chuppah, I love you. Guy don't say I love you. They go back to the hotel after the wedding's over. Best bride, no. She gives him a child, two children, five children, nothing. Finally, kid has a bar mitzvah, their kid gets married. The last of their children gets married. The guy still has not said I love you to his wife. She goes, she, she's waiting, because now the last kid got married. She figured now's his chance, nothing. Ready, ready? She comes to the husband, she says, on the night of the wedding, they're back in their room, she's taking the pins out of her hair. She says to her husband, honey, I want a divorce. Says you want a divorce on the night? You come to me on the night of my child's wedding. <laughs> you come to me, you want a divorce now? 
She says, you know, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for you to say I love you. To appreciate the fact that I was the best wife that I could ever be. And I gave you all the kids. I gave you the same. Look at the weddings I made. Look at the Shabbats I did. The holidays we celebrated together. The house I built you. you The husband says, listen, I'm only 75 years old now. He says, I think I have five, ten more. He goes, when I'm about to die, I'll say I love you. And that will cover everything. Because then I'll know, then I'll know if you were a good wife. This guy deserves to be in an insane asylum. <laughs> but waiting until the Egyptians are dead, not being willing to say thank you just for them. So sometimes a person is still in the situation that they're in. They're at work, they need a raise, they're not making ends meet. And you know what? They did not get a raise that day, but their boss came over to them and said, I noticed the work you did on this report, on this project, unbelievable. So capable, so to not take pleasure and to not come back home, to not talk about how you know the guy, the the boss came over, you're so impressed today. That's the beginning of salvation. That's the makadam. But if you're not noticing each step, you know what happens? HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he's also, so to speak, not motivated to bring you to the next stage. And to the next stage. When we say in the tefillah, Kol anishama tehalel ya hallelujah, and the Chachamim explain, it doesn't mean kol hanishama on every soul, every soul gives thanks. It means al kol nishima unshima. The word nishima, which is connected to the word nishama, nishima means breath. On each breath, a person says, Tehalelyah, you thank God. Could you imagine? I don't know that I could get anything done. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Shtabach Because you have to, you know, you need to breathe again because you're saying Shtabach Like, you know, you never get anywhere. But I think what the Pasuk is communicating to us is a change, a shift in modality. So try it today to say each day five times about something in your day. Thank you. It could be tiny. Even if someone says to you, excuse me, on the street, instead of saying, what are you doing? Streets of New York. You're getting in an elevator and everybody squishes themselves that uncomfortable bit more so that you could get in. Thank you. Say thank you to them. Say thank you to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Notice the beautiful things in your life. Don't be the people that have to wait until the story is over, over, over before they're willing to say thank you. Baruch Amen.